What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Michael Venuto is an ETF industry veteran with over a decade of experience in the design and implementation of ETF-based investment strategies. He's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Teruso Investments, LLC. Michael is the lead portfolio for the first actively managed ETF focused on blockchain, BLOK, companies filed in the U.S., He is also behind the launch of the Teruso ETF Industry Index, which measures and monitors the performance of publicly traded companies that derive revenue from the exchange-traded funds ecosystem. In this conversation, Michael and I learned all about ETFs, how they're built, why they're important, the benefits of access, and what he thinks is going to happen with the Bitcoin ETF in the future. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will as well. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our sponsors as well. They make this all possible. The first, Figure. That's right, Figure Technologies. We invested a large amount of money because we think that the future of finance is automated. Figure is helping people to take out home equity lines of credit, HELOCs, to do mortgage refinancings or student loan refinancings. You can simply go to figure.com and you can apply. They'll tell you within five minutes whether you're going to get the loan or not, and they'll fund it within five days. Head on over to figure.com and check out their HELOCs, their student loan refis, and their mortgage refi products. And lastly, don't forget that Off the Chain's not just a podcast. You can also subscribe on a daily basis to receive the email I write every morning analyzing blockchain, crypto, and Bitcoin news. You can go to offthechain.substack.com or head on over to offthechainmerchandise.com to grab a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, or a hoodie. So offthechain.substack.com and offthechainmerchandise.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Michael and learn about ETFs. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. (laughs) All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Michael here. Uh, We've been hanging out for a little bit, so we figured we probably should turn the microphones on and start uh, start actually recording. Um, Thank you for so much for uh, coming to do this. We got tons to talk about, and frankly, I want to learn about ETFs. I'm super excited to be here. I mean, the last 45 minutes, we've covered so much. So uh, I can't wait already, to get into the real meat of it all. So we pretty much already recorded the <laughs> podcast. So you guys missed out. But uh, <laughs> all right, let's start with uh, your background and kind of how you got to uh, ETFs. And then we can get into uh, exactly what's going on there. OK, so um, I guess at this point, I'm kind of known as the ETF nerd. <laughs> I gave uh, some little uh, trinkets out earlier. But how did we get there? Uh, my background, I actually grew up in North Carolina. Oh, so did I. Where in North Carolina? Uh, Charlotte. Um, I did spend some time in Chapel Hill. I know you guys have that presence there. I went to NC State, actually. Ah, very Um, cool. I was a Duke fan. Yeah, that triangle. Something's happening there. Every friend I had was a uh, Carolina fan or a state fan, and they all thought I was weird for being a Duke fan. Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I was pretty good at chess and debate, and that paid for me to go to school. And I uh, studied philosophy and religion. 
certainly didn't ever think I would be in this industry. Really? Wait, how do you get to school on chess and debate? They give scholarships. Really? Yeah. <laughs> for chess or debate or both? Um, I got the primary money for debate, Yeah. Um, but they still wanted me playing on the chess team. However, there was this thing called girls and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the chess didn't work as well. But it's nice because, you know, chess translates into a lot of other things. Yeah. So. Well, hold on. I want to talk about debate for a second because uh, to me, it was always like they were trying to teach people how to argue. Uh, and it seemed like the people who were just good at arguing to begin with, like had this natural inclination. Uh, but the 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 education of how to argue or debate uh, didn't really seep in in like high school, et cetera. Did you have a different experience actually going through it? No, you're 100 percent right. It was. It was really process. Mm -hmm. um, my, I, we said we'd go some rabbit holes here, so here's one. My proudest moment in debate was I was at uh, Berkeley for a tournament, and I got the first ever tie. What is that? So How does that work? nobody ever thought there could be a tie. Yeah. Right. And I was losing bad, mm -hmm. and the argument they were making against me was a critique of my language that the way I was going about trying to win this debate was oppressing them. Right? And I was like, well, then there can't be a winner. And I won a tie. So how, how do they determine who the winner is? Like, there's what, a judge. There's a, a single judge. A, well, in the final rounds, there's usually three judges. Okay. But in the, you know, usually you do like six rounds and then you're in the finals. But that that's my crowning achievement. The first ever tie. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe it'd be better to win, but a tie. Well, I was definitely losing, so I'll go for the tie. <laughs> Got it. Um, um, all right. So, so you go to school, chess, debate, et cetera. What do you do after school? So um, my grandmother passes away and my grandfather's left up here alone. And I think before I figure out what I'm going to do with my life, let me go to New York and, and take care of my grandfather for a summer. And I had this friend from my childhood who was there and he was driving a Lexus. And, uh, you know, the, the Joey Tribbiani kind of stereotype, that was this guy. And I'm like, what do you do? He goes, I work on the stock exchange. I go, what do you do there? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> That that's I wish I was kidding. I'm not going to say his name because yeah, he's yeah, a good yeah. human. But uh, so and, what, and he was just like a classic uh, New Yorker, slick back yeah, hair, gold yeah. chain, the everything I'm envisioning right now. Everything whipping the Lexus, working on the stock exchange floor, probably slamming donuts in the morning, the whole nine yards. Right at uh, right at 1999 ish. Yeah, 1999, 2000. Money falling from the sky. Yeah. Bonuses yeah. are inflated. Yep. I, I mean, and he didn't know what he did. Um, I know did, what he did. What did he actually do? He was a clerk for Susquehanna or Bear Hunter. I don't think it exists anymore, but yeah. it became Goldman or something. And so what do the clerks do? Nothing anymore. They barely yeah. exist. Uh -huh. I mean, that that's all been digitized. But when I saw that, I said, I'm going to write a book about how horrible Wall Street is and all these terrible things. I'm like philosophy, religion. This is this is my chance to tell the world how terrible this yeah, is. Fuck capitalism. Fuck them all, right? <laughs> um, but Here's where the story turns, right? Uh, so then I make two or three phone calls. I get an internship. My grandmother buys me the worst sport coat I could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. The other grandmother, not the one that passed away. Uh, <laughs> and I, my grandfather gives me a pair of like alligator shoes. They were the most uncomfortable freaking things I've ever seen. And Did I, you look good though? No, no. I, I looked... <laughs> I look like a 22-year-old lost kid who did yeah. not belong there. Um, who was a, a philosophy and religion major yes. who was about to fuck up Wall Street. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who's going to write this amazing critique? I knew nothing. Okay. Um, uh, so I get there and immediately actually fall in love with it. It was like a meritocracy, right? It really wasn't 
all these high powered brains just trying to scam the system. It was a lot of like blue collar workers down there on the, on the floor making what is now being done by computers. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, but I fell in love with it three months into it. Uh, first union offers me a job as a broker, spent a year and a half learning what not to do. And then I landed at a, a hedge fund, mutual fund shop called horizon kinetics. All right. Before we get to horizon, uh, what did you learn not to do? Oh, so when most of the broker trading programs, like if you've seen the movie Boiler Room or Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. and all those, I hate to say it, they everybody thinks that it's an exaggeration. It's actually much worse. I mean, it was that, worse than yeah, that. Yeah. In Wall, what way? The, the part of Wall Street where they're doing the selling is a horrible part of Wall Street. Yeah. Right. Those cold calls, those uh, get the client in, churn them, all that sort of stuff. Doesn't matter how big the bank is, at least 20 years ago, it still existed that way. Yeah. I, I can't say it does today because I don't I don't do it anymore. I, um, I, and I never did it. I I, I didn't succeed there. <laughs> I, I've had people come in and say basically their job was when they joined one of these brokerage, they walked in in the morning, you know, 8, 830 right before the market opens. And the whole goal of the day was 800 dials. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, and, and just so smile and dial, smile, smile and dial. dial, and let them keep going. And you just heard no, no, click, no, click, no answer, no, click, no answer. And then somebody wanted to talk to you, and it was just reel them in to get them to buy a stock. A hundred percent, yes. That's fucking crazy. So, so you'll appreciate the North Carolina connection. I'm working uh -huh. at First Union okay. in New York. Nobody in New York knows what First Union is. Everybody in the South does. Mm -hmm. Still had a Southern accent. I know you don't believe it now. Are you hearing me now? You but sound like you're uh, <laughs> Joey from the Bronx. Yeah. yeah, all right. I sound like that kid who got me into the exchange. <laughs> um, but I was calling North Carolina businesses, and they're telling me to sell them Global Crossing Convertible Preferreds or Sun Microsystem stock, or uh, the AOL Time Warner merger. And I'm like, what the hell? I can't do this. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I found these uh, closed-end funds that were municipals for New New North Carolinians, mm -hmm. and I called every North Carolinian and sold them that. And I got my 50 accounts, and I did everything I was supposed to do to get through the system. And then my senior bro broker looks at me and goes, you didn't help me at all. These guys aren't going to buy another thing from us. You sold them the right thing that they got to buy and hold. <laughs> right? So that's what I mean by I learned what not to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, It's almost like th there was a very binary outcome there. Either you did something good for you or you did something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes yeah, sense. That, that's been the biggest problem with finance for a long time. Actually, mm -hmm. that's what I do love about ETFs. I know we're going to get there eventually, yep. but it's that transparency. It's that client alignment. That's why I got there eventually. Yeah. What's the craziest thing you saw? Like the Wolf of Wall Street, the Boiler Room, like all. What's the craziest thing you saw? All right, so there was this one no, day. No names. Yeah. No names. There was this one day where we were close to the end of some of this, like the markets were crashing, and a couple brokers lost their job, and in protest, they ordered one thousand White Castle burgers to the floor of the exchange. You didn't see it on TV because they did it in one of the back rooms. They, there used to be like six rooms. Now you only see one. There's really two left, but we all only see one. And they filled that room with that just to piss off Grasso, who was the head of the exchange at that time. Really? And, yes. And then they had another trick. That's with, not that crazy. Though. Well, no, here's where it gets crazy. Um, so they brought in the burgers. The other thing is there's no way to get alcohol into the exchange mm -hmm. legally. There was a firm down there, not a firm, a restaurant down there that did Red Bulls. This is before we had Red Bull as a energy drink or whatever. Yeah, yeah. A Red Bull back 20 years ago was a tomato soup that was half vodka. 
So he ordered like two or 300 of those as well and was handing them out. And so it did get crazy, right? There's like a mountain. They're like jumping into this mountain. Yeah. Of, People are getting, they're fucked up yeah, on the stock yeah, exchange floor yeah. and they have their stomachs full from White Castle. Yes. There was, I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things back there. There was two clerks that worked down there that sold pornography, like videos back when there wasn't really an internet. Yeah. Like, there's, well, I'm people, sure there's tons know. of weird you ready stuff. For this? So in 2000 and uh, shit, I think 2010, I actually spent a little bit of time uh, at the New York Stock Exchange doing an internship, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't know this, but next door to the stock exchange, there's like a building attached to the actual stock exchange. Uh, and it's an office complex, right, like executive center. And uh, one of the buildings, uh, uh, one of the offices up there, I forget it was like Hustler Magazine or something. <laughs> and uh, and that was like the talk of a bunch of the traders, et cetera, was they were always looking for excuses. How do they go up there? Because uh, it was all filled with, you know, porn and all this kind of stuff. It's it's amazing what entertained people back then. And back then they had yeah. the Super Bowl pool, pool there was 10000 a box. Really? So, and one winner, $1 million. You know, and I was 22 and I'm looking at all this going these Wait, dudes are rich as shit. <laughs> and, and most of them are blue collar and they're they're actually just working hard to get it. Mm -hmm. um, but I also watched them all disappear. Mm -hmm. Right. When I was down there, there was 10,000 of them. And now I think there's like 500. Oh, I, I would be surprised if there's even uh, that many. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they're still walking around. The guy yeah. who gave me my first job down there is still down there. He's a, still a, a floor like governor or something like that. Okay. You, you see him on TV every day. Yeah. You just uh, don't know it. <laughs> so, so the other thing that uh, a lot of people don't know, and I forget the guy's name, and, and I wish I remembered, but there's one guy who has been the overseer of the Berkshire stock. Hmm. Uh, and he's been doing it for like 20 years to, um, or whatever it's been. Like basically he's been the one guy and uh, in 2010 he was still down there and people would walk over and talk to him and stuff and he said, look, there's the two share classes and, and he knew everything, but he was mid-70s or yeah. maybe even to his 80s then. And uh, I remember asking him, I said, uh, how long are you going to do this? And he goes, why would I stop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the human intervention is still good and it's really the guys that do – guys and girls that still work down there, they matter from 9 a.m. to 10.30 and then again from 3.30 to 4.30. Mm -hmm. In the middle of the day, unless there's a disruption, that's why there's 500 instead of 10,000. Yeah. So how do you go from uh, learning everything not to do uh, <laughs> to Horizon? What was that like? So Horizon was like eye-opening. Um, it was such a different mentality, right? It was like they were managing their own money, plus they had this internet fund, even though they didn't believe in the internet, but they, they wanted to diversify. And it was all about how do we find things that everybody else is ignoring? Mm -hmm. Actually, that's why they're in crypto now. Like they're one of the few RIAs that actually do it. Um, and uh, four or five years in, I went from being the fourth employee with a, a company that had a billion to like the 20th employee with 40 billion. We had 40 billion with 20 employees. It was amazing. Um in 05, our biggest position was Newmont Mining, and we watched it go straight down, like like falling off a cliff. But gold went straight up, mm -hmm. and we realized it was because the access has changed, right? So GLD, the first ever fund that could give you liquid exposure to gold, was launched right at the end of 2004. And so all of our big clients, the, the Soroses and the Einhorns who wanted gold exposure, now weren't getting it through the miners. They were getting it directly through the commodity. Mm -hmm. um, and we realized, well, Murray and Peter and them realized, <laughs> I was still pretty young, 
ETFs are threatening the business of two and 20. Mm -hmm. ETFs are threatening the business of 125 on a mutual fund. ETFs are threatening pretty much everything normal in the financial industry. ETFs 10, 15 years ago were scaring people more than crypto. Um, so they said, how do we hedge this? And it was a boutique firm. So young guy gets the job of how do we hedge this? And it became, let's get into the index business. Let's become angel investors in some of the startups. We got very involved with Wisdom Tree, very involved with emerging global advisors. We looked at a number of others and we said, not only do we want to invest in some of these, we like incubated them in our offices to learn that whole creation, redemption, all that sort of stuff. Fast forward to 2012, I said, it's time to do this on my own. And I started Tarosa. What, what's <laughs> what's the biggest thing you took away from learning uh, to working at Horizon? Oh, stay with what you love, right? So, I loved the research part of Horizon. Mm -hmm. I loved the trading part. I loved the making the deals. By year twelve, I had become in charge of twenty or thirty people. And I had a person above me and then a manager, a company, and then 20 below me and then the clients. And I became a manager of people, not a investment guy anymore. Mm -hmm. And six months of that was enough for me to say, guys, thank you so much, but I'm going to go start my own company. It was nice when they said, well, we'd like to invest in it. So you can't leave on better terms than that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so what was the general idea? You said, hey, I want to go do this on my own, but was it, I want to go invest in ETFs, I want to create ETFs? Mm -hmm. Like, What was kind of that original idea that you had that that uh, really pushed you over the edge to leave? So uh, for all you entrepreneurs out there, <laughs> your first idea sucks. <laughs> um, your first 10 probably yeah, suck. Uh, <laughs> so our idea was nobody has ever looked at ETFs under the hood. They've all said, if it says it's small cap, it must be, and I'm going to buy the cheap small cap one. And we thought, what if we look and make a research firm around what's actually in an ETF, mm -hmm. right? So for example, the Vanguard small cap ETF, ticker VB. If you go look at it, it's actually like 58% mid caps. So we thought telling people that they would give us money to manage. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They didn't. Um, it became a really bad time. The other big ETF firms like F squared and Good Harbor and Windhaven, they were hitting some hard times. So for the first three years, we completely floundered while we built a brand around research and content and technology to look at ETFs. We were impossible for us to get in assets to actually manage of portfolios of ETFs. I think we stayed at 30 million in AUM for the first three years. Mm -hmm. Miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so as you're doing that, do you think, hey, we made a mistake and this doesn't work? Or do you think that we just got to kind of plug, uh, you know, keep plugging along and then we'll get more assets? Or like, wh what's the thought process that you're going through when it doesn't take off how, how you originally thought it would? Yeah. Um, you have to commit to things, right? You have mm -hmm. to give them their real try. But you also can't walk into that definition of insanity for too long because then you end up bankrupt. So, I would say we kept trying for three years, but we had this one little piece that was a different angle. We were doing some consulting work for Global X funds using the research and technology, and that helped grow some of the assets at Global X. So on that year three, when we said, let's keep the research, let's keep the technology, but instead of monetizing it through um, trying to get SMA models, Let's go out and use this to help other ETF issuers grow. 
And the very next day we had Direction as a client and then Robo Global as a client and then EMQQ as a client. Today we actually represent like 14 or 15 issuers. Mm-hmm. And it was just an epiphany point. Today we're eight years old. Right? Really? Uh, yeah, Today? We, Two years? We did a party on uh, the New York Stock Exchange floor on February 5th, eight years ago to launch the business. Congratulations. Um, so- so like happy birthday, basically. Yeah, it's kind of a happy birthday. Oh, I this didn't was, know that. I, feel I, like... I didn't realize it till Facebook told me this morning that uh, that this was a memory and it has the picture of the exchange and the date. Damn, I would have got a birthday <laughs> cake. So my ice cream cake is my favorite, though. So first three years, lost. Yep. Reposition, two years of getting to sustainability, mm-hmm. and the last two or three of finding scale. Okay. And so w- describe what the business does today, because you guys have kind of multiple components to it. Sure. So- we have a tra- we we oversee about two billion in assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a traditional wealth management platform. You know, five or six advisors that use ETFs under our tutelage to help people invest. Then we have a traditional asset management platform where we're the sub advisor of the active blockchain ETF, the active battery metals ETF, the active gig economy ETF, and we still manage some assets there. That you know, that's about six hundred million as well. And then the last piece is. Um, our title ETF services. That's under our umbrella. Anybody who wants to launch an ETF, they come to us. We help them launch it. We help them grow it. We did eight funds last year, um, including some really innovative things like helping Blue Cross Blue Shields equitize their cash in an ETF and helping SoFi, the uh, student loan lender, launch four ETFs, including the first free ones. Uh, and those eight funds raised $620 million in the first year. So That's crazy. It was a great so, all right, year. So describe what exactly is an ETF. Because I think yeah. a lot of people hear ETF. They, they've they seen all the people on Twitter or CNBC, et cetera, talking about ETFs. Like, what the hell is an ETF? Okay. So I'm going to quote one of my friends, uh, Reggie Brown. He's I'm the ETF nerd. He gets called the ETF godfather. He's, okay. <laughs> he's the one who kind of 26 years ago helped build all the pipes for the trading of it down on the American Stock Exchange and stuff. And his definition of an ETF is... It's a mutual fund with benefits. <laughs> and he <laughs> what, says it very sultry. Right? What does that mean? So, so it really is just that simple. The The ETF um, is created under the same laws and same regulations as the mutual fund. It really is the exact same structure. Mm-hmm. It is exempt from one rule. And that rule is that it prices once a day. So mutual fund, same thing as an ETF, but only prices once a day. ETF prices every second. Got it. Now- once you price every second, you get all these unintentional benefits. Okay, one un- unintentional benefit is you have to cre- you have to be able to create and redeem intraday, which means there's massive tax benefits. Mm-hmm. So, what are those benefits? So, an ETF through the creation and redemption process, as long as there's flows, may never generate a capital gain. Um, most of them haven't. So, if you took the same strategy and had it in a mutual fund wrapper and an ETF wrapper, most likely you're going to get a superior return after taxes out of the ETF version. Got it. Right? It's just a distribution of taxes. So I love ETFs because I go back to the philosophy and religion. They're transparent, they're liquid, they're tax efficient, and they tend to be lower cost because they don't have all those embedded fees to pay the old brokers of First Union mm-hmm. that, that I used to work with. Um, so- it really is simply an access point. It is a better technology. It it really s- reminds me of the precursors to what 
blockchain and things like that are doing to finance now. It really decentralized a lot of the original investments. And so give me some examples of the like the most popular ETFs, right? So they're exchange traded funds. They basically are these baskets, if you will, of underlying uh, usually public securities or uh, liquid assets. But like, what are some of the popular ones? Okay. So this is a great question because I have an awesome resource for everybody and it's free. Uh, so we run this thing called the ETF Think Tank. It's literally etfthinktank.com and it has on a daily basis the answers to all those questions. Oh, awesome. And there's no there's no ads. It's not a paid site. We just wanted for the ETF nerds out there an aggregation site, mm -hmm. right? Um, and on there, it'll tell you that as of today, there's 4.4 trillion in US dollars in ETFs. 4.4 trillion. 4.4 trillion. Damn. Okay. Average expense ratio, 19 basis points. Expenses. Okay. Okay. So that's pretty cheap, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about where it's going. Um, the open to close ratio, this is one that I love. Um, in the last 12 months for every ETF that opened, no, for every 1.56 ETFs that open, mm -hmm. one closed. Got it. So net gain every year. It has been, but it used to be for every three that open, one closed. It's been consolidating. The industry is waking up and saying, we can't just have six ETFs for every little subcategory. I think of it as a good thing. Another one that's, I love to quote, right now on average, ETFs own 7.5% of every US stock in terms of their market cap. ETFs own 7.5% of all stocks based uh, on the market cap. Yep. When we started calculating that eight years ago, it was 2.67. Got it. So three three X essentially. Over the last seven years. Mm -hmm. Um for 26 years, ETFs assets have grown on average at 19.6%. So that's a private equity like kind of growth. Yeah. Right? An annualized. Annualized. How do, I, how do I just invest in that? In, okay. in, in that number keep oh, going up. <laughs> man, I, where were you to? I, I did launch an ETF once to track that. Okay. And it was, you know, everybody just came out. That's the meta ETF. We had ticker TETF, right? TETF. Right? Okay. Uh, two years of it out there, nobody bought it. Why? Um, because when it's all said and done, that 19 bips times 4.4 trillion only equals about 8 billion in revenue. Mm -hmm. So when people think of it, they know the ETF industry is growing, but they don't see an $8 billion industry mm -hmm. as, as, uh, huge, huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned to you earlier, like the pet care industry generates 50 billion. Yeah. <laughs> so here's one of the questions uh, I've got, right, is it seems to me like structuring the passive ETFs, right? So um, th there's a whole bunch of them. Let's say just SPY is an easy one, right? So uh, the S&P 500, I'm basically going to build that basket and I'm going to allow people access through an ETF structure to put capital in. Uh, they don't have to be accredited. So it can be unaccredited, accredited, QP, whatever they want to be. Uh, they can put very small amounts of capital in and also they can redeem intraday, et cetera. So they can buy, sell, liquid market, the whole nine yards. Uh, once I create that, yeah, there's some like blocking and tackling that goes into making sure that it still sticks to the index or, mm -hmm. or the construction stays straight. But for the most part, it's marketing, right? True. Like, like once you get it there, is that, would it be fair to say like that's the difference between ETFs that are successful and unsuccessful is who's good at marketing what they've built or are there other things that go into the success and failure of, uh, of an ETF? So there's one step before okay. and then everything else you said is 100% accurate. Okay. You got to get the product right. Like, I can't tell you how many people come to us and go, I've got this idea 
it's very similar to something else that's out there, but I've got a better index. Yep. I'm sorry. Nobody cares about your index. What, and explain, <laughs> but explain exactly what that means. They they go all right. There's a let's say um, there's a there's a widget ETF out there. Okay, it makes this widget, and it's market cap weighted, right? And they're charging twenty basis points. I'll get people who come to me and say, "Hey, I want to do an ETF on that widget, but instead of market cap weighting it." I want to weight it by the revenue of this times the X of that. Oh, that got it. Like, and they, like a very nuanced, yeah. technical component yeah. change. And yeah. because I've got this better index, I want to charge 40 bips. Failure. There's there's no marketing that's going to make that work. Yeah. All people look at is that you're buying the same widget and you're charging me double the fees. Exactly. That might work 20 years from now, mm-hmm. right? Because it's how it happened in the mutual fund industry. You had the simple funds and then people came out with a more complicated version and it built on it. Right now, 99% of ETF investors are looking at the exposure. Mm-hmm. They're not looking under the hood. I thought eight years ago I could start getting them to look under the hood. I'm eight years in, and maybe it's gone from 100% won't to now maybe 99 won't. So mm-hmm. uh, it takes a long time to get people to look past the name, the ticker, the expense ratio. You got the name, the ticker, the expense ratio right, then it's 100% marketing. Got it. And so what are the areas that you've seen that are not the large ones, but they're new that have come out onto the market that you're like, bam, they nailed it. Like, are there certain oh. sectors that you've seen that, that are really get you excited? So I, last year, Defiance came out with a 5G fund. That was brilliant. Okay. 5G. And how did they construct it? Like what's in the underlying uh, assets? It's it's all the companies that are in, I mean, they're going to be in some of the other indexes as well, obviously, but it's the Qualcomms and all that that are Got involved. Verizon, in the, yeah, ATT, whatever. Rolling it out, but they packaged it all in one nice clean sector. They worked with a, a good indexer, not mm-hmm. not like um, some of these specialty thematic things. You don't really want to go to the old school indexers, mm-hmm. right? Because they're going to market cap. You want somebody who's going to think and research. So he used a company called Blue Star Indexes, mm-hmm. Stephen Schoenfeld. The guy was one of the original portfolio managers at, at BlackRock 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he's been doing this forever. And they built an interesting index, but nobody cares like, mm-hmm. until they actually buy it. And then the guy in charge of the firm just poured all the money into marketing it. Mm-hmm. You, Anybody who goes and Googles 5G tomorrow you're going to be chased by the CTF everywhere else you go. Yeah. Right. Is that is paid marketing and digital marketing a big part of the ETF world now? A hundred percent, yes. Really? Um, I, what, would, I would have thought that it was much more what I would call uh, not dumb as in like it's stupid, but like dumb as in not intelligent data-driven marketing. So like, how do I get on television? How do I write a blog? Like that type of stuff. Not so much like... I know that I spend three dollars and I get a customer, and that customer's worth you know twenty seven dollars, and it's more like data driven acquisition. So at, when I was at Global X, um, we started right away into this space because mm-hmm. actually my partner Guillermo Trias had invested in some of these digital marketing firms. Most asset managers won't even touch digital marketing. Yep, in the ETF space, it's different, really? right? Because it is decentralized. There isn't an intermediary that we have to go through, right? Mm-hmm. Like. If the end client wants to buy it, they log into their account and buy it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with hedge funds, mutual funds, SMAs, they got to talk to some old boring person mm-hmm. to help them get to the end investment. So at Global X, we did things like ticker targeting, right? So if we had a competitive fund to somebody else and they looked up on Yahoo Finance, that competitive fund, yep. guess what? Our ad showed up, Yep. right? Nobody had thought to do that in the in the finance world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when we started talking to the regulators about it and our compliance, they're like, you, you know, I mean, you know how it is. Most hedge funds, they don't want to talk to the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with ETFs, you want the masses to know because you're 100% transparent. Yeah, you're basically marketing to the masses and therefore any way you can get to them, whether it's through uh, kind of the broad base, let me go on television, let me write a blog, let me tweet, whatever, all the way down to how do I actually run a Facebook ad campaign to, to get you to convert? Yeah. And it better be educational. Like, mm-hmm. like the, if you, if you just try and say, buy my thing, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. Show me a growth story. Show me how you're capturing it. Show me, you know, that I want this. Like mm-hmm. when we did the, originally launched the blockchain ETF, we were watching the Google AdWords for blockchain Mm -hmm. and knowing that there's this demand. People want to figure out how to get this, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it was so much of a demand that the SEC was scared enough to not let us call it blockchain. So tell me, tell me the story. (laughs) Tell me the story of kind of what you guys, the thought process and how you guys created that original blockchain ETF. Um, Okay. So uh, this is another one of those, uh, my partner is faster than I am at this stuff. (laughs) So uh, I had for our SMA accounts, been buying some blockchain stocks, uh, Grow, Hive. I had bought some GBTC, sold it every time it went up because I was scared to death of the uh, premium. And he kept saying, why don't we do an ETF of this? Why don't we do an ETF of this? And I kept saying, there's not enough companies. I can't make an index. And uh, all of a sudden there was this epiphany a friend of ours called us and said, I've, I've built an index, but it's not really investable. And he said, but I'm working with this other firm. They want to do it, but they need somebody to make it investable. And all of a sudden we said, all right, the three of us are going to do it together and we're going to do it active. And that was the epiphany was, you know, three years ago when we first started this, you couldn't really do a passive version of this and get anything that's a real blockchain company. It was the fastest we've ever moved in our lives. We went from agreeing to do it to filing in 11 days. Wow. And that's especially with Unheard three partners. Of. We, that doesn't happen fast, mm-hmm. um, but we all saw it and we all trusted each other and it's been great. And so it's important to call out here, the difference between these passive and active uh, ETFs. What, what is that? Okay. So I talked about mutual funds with benefits earlier. Mm-hmm. So the first benefit has always been the low cost that people point to. And over the last three or four years, people realized Hey, it doesn't have to be passive to be low cost Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be passive to be an ETF. And I I will say the pioneer here is Catherine Wood and ARC. What she did to bring active management into the world of ETFs is brilliant because not only did she make it viable by being good at what she does, she did something even more important. It goes back to your marketing points. With a mutual fund, you only know what you own like 35 or 45 days later. So you're not allowed to talk about what you own. With an ETF, you tell what you own every 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. So rather than find that as a challenge, Catherine embraced it and said, since everybody knows what I own every 15 seconds, I'm going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right? So she took what most active managers would see as a negative, embraced it and ran with it. Mm -hmm. So today we have plenty of active ETFs. In fact, Active ETFs represent about 3% of the assets in ETFs today, but represent 6% of the revenue. Really? Yeah. So you can see why people might be attracted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and Kathy has been on the uh, on the podcast before, and I think part of what has made her uh, so successful is not only, one, her investments and kind of the conviction she has, uh, but 
in the marketing, but also on top of that, um, she really embraces the idea that anyone can quote unquote participate by uh, kind of open sourcing and open allowing participation in her research meetings, et cetera. And, and it's just a very different way to think about asset management than um, kind of traditionally has been done. A hundred percent. Like I've never understood these people who say I need to have a lack of transparency in order to have alpha. Mm-hmm. Well, then you don't really have alpha. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so I love that she's saying, I'm going to bet on innovation and my team, and I'm going to tell everybody what I'm doing because I got no secrets. She she has embodied the values of the ETF structure. Yep. Uh, it's amazing. It wasn't easy, you know, but I'm, I'm very happy for her. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so- as you look at the passive versus active, you guys decided to go with the active model for um, the blockchain ETF. What was going into that actual ETF? Like when people yeah. think of blockchain companies, most of them are private, not public. Absolutely. Um, and that that was really hard in the beginning. It's why you know my partner Guillermo kept saying, build it, build it. And I kept saying, it's not ready, not ready. And then the epiphany of going active was, oh, if I'm active, I can buy IPOs 30 days later. If I'm active, I can buy $100 million market caps. So, for example, last year, there was three or four IPOs that I would call very close to pure plays in the blockchain space. Which were? My absolute favorite right now is Silvergate. Mm-hmm. Um, probably half the people listening to yep. you have banked with them. because yep. Alan Lane's been on. Yep. Yeah. Like, they, they are the bank, right? They went public in December, right? It trades at a discount to what normal banks do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I, At some point, when the big banks want to really get in, they're either gonna have to build it or they just buy Silvergate. Like mm-hmm. that's a great one. Uh Canon, you know, ASICs chip maker, like pure play miner and chip maker. Yep. Um uh One Connect Financial. These are some that you know came out last year, but we've also got things like HUD 8 and Hive, uh Galaxy Digital, Novagratz's company. I mean, it's a merchant banking company. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like stakes in ethos and stakes in HUD 8, stakes in all of it. Um, GMO Internet, I mean, they're they're just cranking away a lot of what we own at the top are these large Japanese firms like GMO and Z Holdings and um and uh digital digital garage mm-hmm. that primarily are doing stable coins and getting into the uh decentralized finance or they're building exchanges. So I think the original negatives that everybody talked about, these are just chips companies or these are just uh uh big fang names, not so much anymore. Right. There's if I look through my top 10, you know, there's maybe two names that the average investor would recognize. For sure. What what is um, as you look out at the space, what are the things that are coming down the pipe that are in the private markets that you're saying, hey, when this gets into public market investors hands or they can get exposure whether through ETFs or otherwise, uh, you're like, that's going to be a really big moment. Um, so. In terms of the, the the public companies, I think it's going to be the spinoffs. Okay, explain. So right now you have awesome things that are 10, 20, 30% of big companies' revenue. Mm-hmm. And standalone, they're a pure play blockchain company, right? So I think we're going to see spinoffs of JP Morgan, that's their blockchain business, or IBM, that's their blockchain business, or backed being spun out of ICE, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the play, play because a lot of... The private stuff is partially owned by SBI Holdings or SoftBank or Digital Garage or, uh, you know, Accenture has an arm here. Citigroup's invested here. JP Morgan, they all have taken these little stakes 
you know, MasterCard's gone all in. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for the public markets, that's that's the net. Now, the other end of it, you know, whenever we talk ETFs, everybody wants to know about the Bitcoin ETF, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what everybody's waiting for. Ironically, we don't see that as a threat to what we built. The blockchain ETF block is a hedge against crypto as alone. Okay, expl explain <laughs> this. Uh, first, as why do you feel like Block is not threatened by a Bitcoin ETF? Because Block is the technology. Mm -hmm. It's the companies making money off of it. If there is a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ETF someday, Block will become like GDX. So GDX is the gold miner ETF. Mm -hmm. And GLD is the gold ETF. Mm -hmm. So people who want to own the protocol will buy the Bitcoin ETF. Mm -hmm. And people who want to use buy the picks, axes, and uh, utilization of the protocol, mm -hmm. we'll buy the blockchain ETF. Got it. And as you think about the Bitcoin ETF, like what's your analysis of kind of where we are today? Um, I know uh, we're investors in uh, in Bitwise, obviously. Mm -hmm. They've got one of the applications in and, and a mutual friend of uh, mine and yours is Hunter. Yep. Um, kind of what, what is the, uh, the thought process there as to how that plays out? So I've been uh, a little controversial on this. <laughs> If there was a crypto ETF, I would buy it. I would buy it for my clients. Um, I think it would be great. Why is that controversial? Well, here's where it gets controversial. The part is, I don't think it's good for crypto. Um, okay, explain that. So crypto's part of the original mission is to get rid of the trusted third party, right? Like that is that is part of why we want a decentralized network. Um, that said... We have this whole group of investors that are waiting to get in until the trusted third party of an ETF and the mm -hmm. SEC says it's okay, right? So the reality is it's a contradiction, right? The SEC is saying when these markets are clean and we can follow them and all that sort of stuff, then we'll let you put it in an ETF, okay? All right. So <laughs> let me let me give you a scenario. There's a couple of people who have said this to me. Uh, I'm not saying that you're wrong, mm -hmm. but let's take cash, for example, US dollars. I can own that in a decentralized, self-sovereign way. I can have physical cash, right? I got money right here in my pocket. Or I can take these same dollars and I can put them into an electronic version in a bank via a centralized third party, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And I can get exposure through multiple ways to the same asset. But it's my choice, yep. right? I could take all every dollar that I own and I could put it all into physical cash and hide it underneath my bed, or I can go use centralized third parties. If I could only have it in one format, either or, right? It would drastically limit the access. Sure. Bitcoin, in my opinion, is similar in that I can own Bitcoin directly, right? And I can self-custody it and kind of do all the things that is kind of that Bitcoin ethos that you're talking about, which without yep. a doubt is super important and um, should be encouraged. But there is some percentage of the population, I don't care how much education you do, they'll never do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you add in a Bitcoin ETF, all of a sudden you're just giving another way to access. So it's not so much that I disagree with you, it's I don't know if it's going to be as big of a moment as people want it to be, yeah. right? Because there's still... The people who own Bitcoin today aren't then going to just go buy Bitcoin ETF. No, right? why am I going to go pay for it when I've already got it? Yeah, when yeah. I already have it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's one. And then two is you're actually just going to bring in the people who probably weren't going to go buy it directly. Like I keep going back to anyone who knows about Bitcoin and has made the decision to invest went and bought it. 
right? They, I agree. They're not waiting around for the ETF, in my opinion, right? Maybe there's some people who are like, eh, we haven't made the decision yet, but if an ETF got approved, then we would do it. But if people have decided to invest, yeah, it's difficult to go to Coinbase or to go to Gemini or go to you know BlockFi or whoever, but it's not that difficult. No, it's not. The reality is the reason most people want it is so that advisors can charge fees on it. Of course. Yeah. It and, helps the advisors. And, 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 yeah. So it's it to me, it's like it's like they're signing their own death warrant. Right. Mm-hmm. So um I get the question, and this is kind of connected. What is the biggest threat to ETFs? It's this, the blockchain, mm-hmm. right? Like once every security is tokenized, why would you need an ETF? Why would you need um half the the, the five hundred people left on the stock exchange, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why people like NYSE are investing in backed and things like that. So it's the same contradiction, but it's it's important to talk about it because if the average person is going to buy the Bitcoin ETF or the crypto ETF as a speculation, they need to know that the reason it has value is because it's going to replace that whole system, mm-hmm. right? Like it is going to replace the ETF if it works. And that's when it's going to be worth an insane amount of money. Yeah. What what do you feel like right now uh, is the general sentiment of folks that are buying ETFs? Mm-hmm. Are they saying, I can't wait for the Bitcoin ETF? Or is that something that's more like the crypto community is waiting for and they think it's a big deal, but people outside of crypto could care less? Um, it will it will likely cause the price to go up because there will be a massive demand. I, I you, you do you so you do think that there's an I think it's a price. billion dollar fund within three months. I think there is a lot of demand, mm-hmm. right? Because the look, what do you think the fee looks like on that? A reasonable one, or what is likely to come? I think somebody could probably charge close to one percent because there's going to be Damn, storage you, costs. You think that one uh, percent, so hundred basis points, whereas the traditional fee structure right now is on average around 19 or 20 basis but points. But that's asset weighted, right? So if I mm-hmm. if I look at like the robotics ETF that's mm-hmm. done extremely well, that's at 95 bips. Got, okay, so there some, are ones yeah, that have high, yeah. high in air yes. quotes. Cause, but when you have, you know, SPY at two or 300 billion at seven bips, or yeah, no, yeah. 9.45 bips. I love how now, now, now they're rounding the half bips <laughs> so that it, you know, it, it's almost 10, but it really gets quoted as nine. It's very smart what they do nowadays. But when you have a quarter trillion dollars mm-hmm. at nine bips, that takes the whole average down. But mm-hmm. there are plenty, like ARC, I think, is at 70 bips. Nobody has any problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe 75. Our blockchain ETF is at 70 bips. Nobody's complaining there. Mm-hmm. We're doing a lot of active research. We got to yep. sit down with Novogratz and Overstock and and the Japanese companies, Digital Garage, meet all the IRs. Figure out if Riot's a real company or not. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're being paid for doing the research. Absolutely. And so, um, when you look at that uh, ETF, Bitcoin ETF gets approved, billion dollar fund in a couple of months. Uh, you're driving, you know, a billion dollars. That's probably a ten million dollar revenue uh, business, give or take, for somebody. Um, what? Yeah, what? but if it keeps going up. Okay, so, so, so that's my thing. It's like, 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 what does it grow into, though? Right? You're talking about 250 billion dollars in the ETF world uh, today. Um, like, how big could something like that get? A Bitcoin ETF. So, the the problem is there's there's two variables here, right? So there's the variable of probably raises a billion dollars in three or four months, mm-hmm. and then you get the price run up. 
right? That's part of why the SEC is being so careful. Yep. Um, You're saying a billion dollars of capital inflow into the ETF. They then obviously have to go buy Bitcoin. Yep. Which, All of a sudden, you get a billion dollars flowing into the asset. It's only a $160, $170 billion asset today. There's price movement. Now you see the price moving. Then people start chasing, right? You can see very quickly how here we go into this parabolic run. But at the same time, the SEC wants to protect people from getting caught up in that mania. 100%, yes. Yeah. They saw the the Long Island blockchain <laughs> or Long Island ET with T, was it? Long Island Ice Tea. Long yeah. Island Ice Tea blockchain thing. So like they changed their name to blockchain like overnight and yeah. the, literally the stock just exploded. Exploded. And that was like 2 weeks before we launched our blockchain ETF, right? And 2 days before we launched, they called us and said you can't use the word blockchain in the name. Really? Yes. Cuz they saw the the mania that was happening. Yep. Now for us, honestly, it was one of the best things that could happen. Um there's an irony here. So we had a great ticker, BLOK. Everybody knew what it was. Um, what What is it actually called? Uh, the Amplified Transformational Data Sharing ETF. Jesus Christ. Yeah. What, the Amplified Data Sharing. Uh, Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF. Okay. I don't think I've said that in two and a half years. Yeah. Um, AKA blockchain. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I understand that the, the regulators are there to protect the public. Yep. Right. And they did. Um you know, but anybody who went and looked at what we owned, they knew what they we owned. We showed our holdings. Yep. Um, so, but at that time they were protecting. So when they look at this stuff, they're always looking to protect because there's no upside in it for them. Mm-hmm. Right. What What is the upside for them to bring in this new technology? Right. It's they've got enough to regulate. Yeah. So it has to actually prove itself out. And here's the irony back to the the statement earlier. I think once it proves itself out. I don't think you'll, people will need the ETF anymore. I agree. <laughs> you know, I agree. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, um, when do you think it gets approved? Whew. Does the ETF get approved while Jay Clayton's in office? I don't know. Um, That's a cop out answer. No, Come no. On. But I'm going to give. I'm going to give a little more. Right. Uh, I would have bet this year. Uh, because this year, meaning 2019 or 2020, 2020. Okay. 2020. We're recording this uh, February, 2020. Yep. So I would have bet February, 2020. Cause we've seen the interval funds get approved mm-hmm. and, and I see trading in markets starting to understand it. But then as I talk to a lot of the uh, regulators directly on other things, they don't seem to see a reason to get here. Mm-hmm. I always thought that the first product was going to be futures based and then you had, you know, CBOE futures kind of fail. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't, you know, they wouldn't do the VIX products until the futures were trading well. They're not going to do this as, so all the things that I thought were going to get it there aren't. Uh, here's the wild card. We got our having coming. We don't know what's going to happen. I, I love your warnings on Twitter all the time. You know, got to be careful and you got to do your own research. <laughs> I agree with it, but listen, because here's why you ready? Because I, people accuse me all the time yeah. of never saying negative things or never saying the warnings. And so I said, you know what? Fine. Everyone, that's your yeah. biggest knock against me. I'm going to periodically tweet. You know what? I'm going to tweet it out while we're, while we're here on recording Fire this podcast away. right now <laughs> is that I'm going to periodically tweet out saying, don't invest all your money, do your own research. All the things that people want to be, that people don't want to hear, but need to be told. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it's, you have to know what you're on. Like that's, that's what I love about this whole ETF thing. It shows you what you own. There's no secrets. And, you know, I don't want to be the the bull here and say, oh, the crypto winter is coming to an end and the halving is coming. But 
that's the wild card. Do you not? You don't think it's over? I, I am. Well, I'm so on the record here that I'm afraid to say how bullish I am. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait. Well, all right. Well, tell us some of why you're bullish. I just I see the actual companies involved actually using the technology, not for bullshit anymore. Right. So when I agree. I, when I first started doing the actual company uh, research, I'd go there, I'd talk to the IR department, and blockchain was like ESG to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah It was yeah. like, oh, they have to talk about yeah. it. We need our blockchain strategy so that we can get some headlines and everyone pays attention. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, ah, you know, how do I buy this? Uh, There's a little bit here. I got to see it. And now when I talked the second time, I go back to talk to them. It was, we've got a utility token. <laughs> and then the utility token era drove me insane. And that was basically when everything was crashing, mm-hmm. right? Utility token this, utility token that. And then in the last, call it 18 months, I've watched so much happen with security token and actual finance things and and actual transactions happening. And I mean, even Overstock, despite all the headaches that come with that, what they did with the token dividend forced certain parts of the financial system who've never thought about this to think about it. Mm-hmm. it uh, and we traded through it. Like it was not easy. Mm-hmm. So- I am bullish because although I don't see the full killer app yet, other than the cross border, I see it coming because there are actual real projects now. It's not, it's not just, hey, we said it at our IR meeting so that we got some SEO and SEM on it, <laughs> you know? For sure. What, um, what's the worst part of the ETF industry? There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of things that uh, obviously are great for investors. They're great for the asset managers. Uh, what do you think is like the dark side of the ETF industry? Oh man, I'm going to piss people off if I go here. Yeah, that's fine. I, I piss people <laughs> off every day. You know, I'll take the blame. Yeah. This is, he, I'm just channeling what I'm thinking to him. So he's only going to repeat what yeah. I say. No, no, I'll just <laughs> tell the truth. Cause I philosophy, religion, transparency, we're all there. Um, it's gatekeepers, man. It's when this started, mm-hmm. the ETFs could be bought anywhere. It okay. was decentralized. It was just like a stock. Over the years, the bigger firms and it's every one of them have figured out how to put up gates to prevent investors that are acting or using them as an intermediary from accessing new innovative ideas. And then they're asking the older firms that they already have relationships with to clone those ideas. So give me an example of what like a gate would look like. A gate would look like um, bank XYZ says you can't buy this ETF because it's from a new issuer who we haven't approved. Oh, got it. Yeah, but yeah, if yeah. you really want it, we'll call this issuer that we already have business with and ask them to create a clone of it. Got it. Right. And that so basically stifles they, innovation. Basically, they take the idea, they hand it to the big asset manager. The big asset managers, the, you're not going to get fired with going with IBM type model. Exactly. I'll cover my ass. You as the investor, you're going to get the same exposure. Uh, the big asset manager loves us because we're bringing them capital. We cover our ass. You're not going to fire us. Uh, but the person who gets screwed is that person with the innovative idea who's creating the, uh, the small ETF. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you got to understand- ETFs are taking a massive business model away from these big banks, right? They make a ton of money on these mutual funds and they're, that fee is not book banked into an ETF. So they deserve the right to figure out a due diligence, figure out this or that. But I don't like that it comes at the cost of innovation, mm-hmm. right? Like to me that 
I always say there's two things pushing the growth of ETFs. We talked a lot about client alignment factors. I said tax efficiency, uh, uh, transparency, liquidity, low cost, all that. The other one is innovation growth factors, okay? ETFs made gold accessible. ETFs made leverage accessible. ETFs have made buy rights accessible. Mm -hmm. ETFs have made robotics and blockchain accessible. ETFs will probably eventually make crypto accessible. Mm -hmm. You start stifling that in innovation, and then we're just back to to the uh, making 800 dials a day. Yeah, yeah, hung yeah. up on. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yep. Right. What um what what else do you think about the the blockchain crypto space? Like, what are you excited about outside of ETFs? Okay, so my favorite thing about blockchain is uh, it takes the the values that I've talked about in ETFs to the next level, and I love how the next generation is going to embrace this. So uh, I have three children. Uh, they're now 8, 10, and 12. And each one of them got a Bitcoin two or three years ago at like 850 bucks. Mm -hmm. So that means every day they look at it. Mm -hmm. They know the price, right? And to me, that tells me this is really going to work because they're watching all the YouTube videos. They're understanding it. My my eight-year-old, he was seven at the time, so but he has a Raspberry Pi. He went and built a Bitcoin miner after watching a YouTube video. It didn't work. He really didn't know what he was doing, but he plugged a bunch of wires together and uh, and uh, put it there. And I was so proud of him. Um, I know- Show it to him. Yeah, the, the <laughs> listeners can't see it, but uh, for the YouTubes, I bought this for seven bucks online. It's a, it, it's a gold <laughs> uh, coin that has the Bitcoin B on it. Yeah, it's basically a piece of metal. Uh, it's worth $7, <laughs> and, uh, but- it, I stuck it on his Raspberry Pi, and when he came home from school, he's like, oh, my God, it worked. You know? <laughs> uh, but because of that, I think I'm going to buy him a coin mine for his birthday. Oh, um, let's yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so what's interesting, though, is uh, the kids, they they don't question whether this is a thing. Nope. Uh, they're like, of course it's a thing. <laughs> of course. Like, they don't watch TV. Yeah. Right? They they watch their, their screens, and, and they don't. They don't have the same misconceptions that we have. They're not walking in with uh, uh, this idea that the government has to tell me it's worth something. So every time uh, I talk to one friend, he has uh, two kids. They're around uh, I don't know, 10, 11, and then uh, probably 13, 14. So kind of between the ages of 10 and 15. Um, I, I wish I could say who it is, but but uh, a, a good friend of mine um, – and he says that his kids are the ones who convince him to buy more Bitcoin. They, <laughs> they don't actually say like, hey, dad, go buy more Bitcoin. But the way that they talk about it, he's like, this is absolutely like, I'm so fucking bullish because like my kids don't question it. Yeah. Right. And and it's interesting to see, um, you know, kids when they see technology, one, they're better at using it. Like you ever seen like a six year old using a iPhone? I, they, they know everything. <laughs> my my son sets up like iPhone stores in the basement of all our old broken ones, <laughs> and he knows like he'll he'll list out the iPhone 11 does this and that. that, that, that and I have no idea what you're talking about, but crazy. Yeah, and, but but uh, they just they understand what's going to work and what's yes. not, right? Which is uh, which is pretty cool. And they, and they don't care about you know who is Satoshi Nakamoto or all the all the BS we deal with with trying to explain to somebody who's you know. 80 years do, old. Do they buy things in video games? 
Um, yeah. So Fortnite bucks, uh, yep. the V bucks. Oh my god, I hate V bucks. But like, because <laughs> it, it's like he gets a Christmas present, and all mm-hmm. he wants to do is buy V bucks. Mm-hmm. But I get it that he's acclimated now. Yep. Um, I know, like my friends over at Galaxy Digital, they keep telling me, look at the cryptos that are working in gaming. Yeah, because those are going to be very. I know, powerful. I know Mike is real uh, bullish on. Yeah, uh, I think. I think. Yeah, Yoshi like, keeps talking about it yeah. too. Yoshi, man, shout out to Yoshi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, that, He's that been dude. very helpful with us with blocks. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, the, the kids get it though, and they they don't they don't slow down, and that tells me it's going to get there. Actually, we did have a story to talk about that I promised I'd tell you today. All right, let's hear. And it, it kind of links in here. So I mentioned the kids don't care who created it. Yep. And I, I love, and I always explain that the fact that we don't really know who created it is awesome. But this is one of those scenarios that people don't, that a lot of history buffs might know, but this is uh, his history not repeating, but rhyming. There's this story of Nicholas Bourbaki. Okay. okay. Nicholas Bourbaki was a Napoleonic general who lost like multiple wars or multiple battles. I guess so he didn't lose the full war. And he got exiled to some island, tried to kill himself. Failed at that. Like he was like the known as the failure, right? That was, you know, a couple hundred years ago in, in France, that was the name. The elements of algebra, all the volumes that create the, the original text for how, how algebra works written in France mm-hmm. are all authored by Nicholas Bourbaki. Really? No, it's, oh. it's the same as Satoshi. It's a group of people who didn't want to have credit for it. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So modern algebra uh-huh. is written by a group of mathematicians in France, and they claim the author is Nicholas Bourbaki all the way through. Because they didn't want to be identified. Because they wanted people to adopt it and not question the authors. Not be like, oh, this guy has this opinion because he's trying to sell that paper or this or that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a poor French accent. But- <laughs> <laughs> he the babe. Yeah, I just yeah. got back from France. They're a little bit rude. I must say that the stereotype is true. <laughs> yeah, they, depends where you go. Yeah. Paris. <laughs> no, but but that idea is really interesting because uh, when you when you look at uh, the removal of the creator, yeah, it does drastically increase the likelihood that people will adopt something. I love it. It's like give the ego away. Yeah, Marty Bent calls it uh, the immaculate conception. Beautiful, right? Which is uh, you know, little. Fiat is religion, and so is uh, any money. Yeah, uh, and so it, you have to fitting. have a belief system somewhere. I mean, for sure. Yeah. What? Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so there is a at Michael underscore Venuto on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. ETFThinkTank.com is probably the best place to get our unbiased content, right? And then we have plenty of other websites where we're doing and selling stuff. But I'd rather you find me. Where we're educating, right? <laughs> where we're acting as a Burbaki or a uh, Nakamoto. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, before I finish up, rapid fire. What's the most important company in crypto? Hmm. Most important company in crypto. In terms of public, like what we're dealing with? Whatever. Public, private. I mean, I guess from an adoption standpoint right now, even though it's not the core, I, I think it's fidelity or or backed like from from getting to people understanding this and actually using it in the finance world. Mm -hmm. You think they're huge custody. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing. Um, What's your most controversial thought in crypto? 
that a Bitcoin ETF is a contradiction to the overall concept. So uh, that's <laughs> controversial for everyone except for the hardcore Bitcoiners. Exactly. Right. Um, um, I guess. I guess. I guess my price targets. Oh, maybe outside of the crypto world. Whenever people say, "Well, why do you have Bitcoin?" I go, "One, I believe in it. Two, it's bug out money." Right. I. I, I yeah. I, chaos edge. Yeah. Yeah. I do believe if I've got to go to Europe, if I got to go to Latin America, I want to know I got a hundred grand. That's probably going to be worth way more than that in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What um What's the one law or regulation that you would change or improve in finance? Oh, um. So there's a lot of ridiculous ones out there. Um, I think probably the biggest ones have to do with with taxes. Right. I, I think that the tax code as it applies to investment should be changed to promote good investor behavior. People who trade in and out should be punished, right, from the tax code. And people who buy and hold and do it as an investment should be rewarded. The ETF does some of that, but there's plenty of other parts of finance that are left out. Yeah, it's it's kind of like on a 10,000 foot view, they've done it correctly. But when you get into the details, that's where it gets, yeah, it gets up. messy quick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could list a hundred other little ones, but they don't matter yeah. to the average investor. Taxes eat away. Taxes are fees. What, uh, what's the most important book you've ever read? So, uh, I, I always like to give two here cause I, I have my fiction one and my investment one fiction city of glass. So uh, we mentioned North Carolina earlier mm-hmm. city of glass helped bring me back to New York. Mm-hmm. It's Paul Oster's book. It's part of the New York trilogy. If you haven't read it, it's it's worth reading, especially if you love how New York City works. But mm-hmm. it also handles language and City of Glass. City of Glass by Paul Oster. Okay. And then um, what about the investing book? I, I have to go with a classic because he's been somewhat of a mentor to me is Random Walk Down Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bert Malkiel's helped us with our business over the years. And there's two things I love about it. He lays out the math case for buying and holding. And then at the end of the book and in and edition number 10, 11, 12, he starts talking about where there's inefficiencies mm-hmm. and how to do it. So he's not an ideologue. I hate people who come out and say, this is the only way to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that he's laid out why indexation works and why it's a base. And then he's laid out why active works where there's inefficiencies. Makes complete sense. Aliens? Believer? Probably. Why? I'm a believer that there's extended life. Why? Like, I just don't see how there isn't, right? Like it's- Just the world's <laughs> like, like the galaxy is too big? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get too weird, but- No, we get super fucking weird All right. Here. This can't be the only dimension. There's. I've met plenty of people that you, probably have a zipper on the back of their neck. You, you, know, like, you think that it's a simulation? <laughs> no. Um, no simulation. I don't feel the simulation. I, I, I feel there's multiple parallels. There's multiple- there's too much space for us to be the only consciousness. Yeah. And I think we have too much hubris to think that out of all the living beings that we could see on this planet, that we're the only ones that are actually woke. Yeah. Um, I think that's, it's, it's crazy when you start thinking about like, we don't need to go off the planet to find yeah. the, the other life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I saw recently another video on Twitter, uh, of this fucking thing in the ocean. I don't even know what it was. But I'm telling you, that shit ain't nothing that we learned about in school. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it, it was moving in all weird directions. It was changing colors. It was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. There's so we've talked about 
some of my weird stuff with chess and debate and ETFs and crypto and wokeness. The other thing I love to do is fish. I do that with my okay. kids. We're on the sea all the time. I've been a hundred miles out to sea overnight for three or four days. You see weird, weird stuff. Really? Like, yeah. Like, what's like, the weirdest thing you see? I mean, I've seen, I've seen a uh, swordfish come up with like a squid chasing them. And it's supposed to be the other way around. And there's lights, like there's no light out there, but you see it coming up from the depths with lights. I saw a- Where's the light coming from? The, the fish. Oh, They're yeah. bioluminescent. The squids yeah. have bioluminescence. And then um, I saw this uh, one time, a, a lobster pot I pulled up on 80 miles off the coast of New York and there's a fin on it. And I don't, what is this? And I pull up and it's a shark that was like eight feet long that bit the rope and got his teeth stuck in it. I spent a half hour getting this shark's teeth off the, like you see crazy things. Yeah. It's just, it's just nature. Yeah. yeah and I could have just kept going, yeah, yeah. but I wanted to save that shark. Do, like, do you have a, uh, you have Instagram? Uh, no, no, my kids do. And they keep telling me about it. All right. Don't, don't tell them what I'm about <laughs> to tell you. Cause you don't want them watching this. But, uh, if you just go on, you know, your browser, mm-hmm. go to www.instagram.com slash nature is metal. M E T A L. It's, just absolute savagery in nature. It's yeah. just complete violence of animals eating each other, tracking each other, just, just shit that you would look at and be like, it is a re- daily reminder of how uh, humans are just soft, right? <laughs> if you think of us as an animal compared to actual the wild, the things that go on in nature, most humans don't want to see. Uh, I hear you. I think my kids have shown me some of those yeah. videos. Of, I mean, I was I was in Florida at the ETF conference at a, like 9 a.m. I just get a picture of a giant tuna my, from my son. And he's like, look at the size of this fish. Like they just get yeah, excited. Yeah, they just love it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. What question you got for me to end this thing? Oh, question for you. Um, you know what? I've heard so many of your pods, so I mm-hmm. kind of know the answers to a lot of them. Whatever what, you got. I got it. I got it. What question have you not been asked that you've always wanted to be? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, How's that for a turnaround? There's that debate skill. <laughs> yeah. The the question that I haven't been asked, I'm more surprised that people don't ask about uh, my motivations for certain things huh. or uh, they don't ask. Everyone wants to ask like the easy, soft questions. Yeah. No one really asks like super hard questions. The people who have, so like I'll give a shout out to Matt O'Dell. Matt O'Dell came in and he had very specific questions. He was like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that and stuff? Mm. So like he definitely gets credit there. Um, and then uh, Meltem, the first time that we did the interview, uh, Meltem DeMores came in and she pushed back on some stuff, et cetera. And like what people don't realize is like I kind of enjoy that more. Um, <laughs> it's just like people come in and ask like, Kind of like softball quite Like, well, what do you think is going to happen with Bitcoin? Like, okay, everyone's kind of already heard that, right? Yeah, uh, I, I listened to your uh, AMA on the train ride in today. So yeah, I was yeah. like, I know the YouTube. So I was like, I, I can't think of a question, but it's interesting to hear how you just described that. Yeah. Because I think that's why you've been successful with this is because it's genuine. Of course. Right? Like I, people, I, if people were sitting here going, pomp is selling something. Yeah, yeah. So like here, here's what it. I tell I tell people behind closed doors. I have no problem saying this out loud. This is the most selfish thing I do. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks about it as uh that's so nice. He creates so much content. No, fuck no. I'm learning every single conversation yeah. I have. And 
I'm writing every morning. It forces me to put my thoughts. I'm tweeting. I'm seeing the way people interact with it. Like I'm getting all of these inputs and signals and feedback and critiques. Uh, and it helps me accelerate what I think and kind of have a more thorough um, thesis. And so like it's selfish in that standpoint. If I wasn't learning anything in these conversations, I wouldn't have another conversation. Yep. Like I, I'd just see ya. But the fact that I then record them and I post them and people find value, great. Like that, like that's a second order effect, but this is the most selfish thing I do by far. Okay. So when they want to edit this, you just go back and say, Mike's going to ask the question, why do you do these pods? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's leave it all in. No, we don't do we any Because we got editing. to an awesome answer. Jo Joe's we in the Jeopardy. corner. We're, we might do a behind the scenes video to post on YouTube because Joe's got his little studio set up. We got the Mevo camera. We've got lights. We, we got him about, laughing. Think about this. It took 220 something episodes before we got a fucking light in the room, right? But we got a light in the room now. We are ready to rock and roll. Next, <laughs> next time I want makeup. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there will never be any makeup. But the next thing I got to do is we got to get the uh, some art for the wall. So or, or some of the foam if, stuff uh, for the echo. No, I don't care about the echo. People, people don't like <laughs> well, the Well, we're up on out here. I don't think there's much echo. But I think we, we played Jeopardy on that question. Yeah, exactly. You gave the answer. I gave the question afterwards. That's fine. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, I appreciate you coming in and doing this. You guys have done a ton of shit in the uh, ETF world, so I appreciate you giving us a rundown there. Uh, people can go check out uh, ETFthinktank.com, uh, check out the Block ETF, and uh, we'll have to do this again in the future. This has been a blast. Absolutely. I'll reach around. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.